Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 15, Mikhail Gorbachev and Delilah. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Falsify what we falsify. Bring an umbrella when we forget to bring an umbrella. Little twist there. Mm. Uh, And today I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 2, Simpson and Delilah. And that first aired on October the 18th, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about the former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize on October 15th, 1990, three days before Simpson and Delilah first aired. I'll be going over all the reasons why he won the prize, so think of it as the greatest hits of Mikhail Gorbachev. Yes, and a fond farewell to podcast favourites Andropov and Chenenko. Yeah, we're going to give them a little bit more attention than we've done before. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Now, it would be remiss of us not to gloat over our recent uh, Simpsons quiz win. Yep, we won another one. Yes. We're getting quite good at them now. We're two for two, if you ignore the three I've been to without Tom and not one. Yeah, that's true, that's true. So yes, this was at um, a place called Vidiodyssey. It's it, it, it's like a combination of video and odyssey, but yes. I've been struggling with how to pronounce it. <laughs> video odyssey. That's what I'm going to go with. I mean, it's it's in Liverpool. I loved it. It was if a 12-year-old me had designed a bar. Yep, there is beer. There are retro arcade games. Mm-hmm. And on this particular day, there was a Simpsons quiz. They do uh, screenings of films and uh, TV series. Mm-hmm. I, I can't see a problem with it myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was absolutely awesome. Also, I must say that if you're into scepticism and history and you can watch the BBC, be sure to watch American History's Biggest Fibs with Loosely Worsley. It's great, but she didn't mention Betsy Ross, who was supposed to have designed America's first flag. So listen back to the flag special of this show for that. She was also wearing a version of the American flag in some scenes, which, as we now know, is technically illegal. Well, it's not illegal. It's just not particularly patriotic. But she's British, so who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so, Season 2, Episode 2, Simpson and Delilah, aired, as I said before, on October the 18th, 1990. The production number was 7F02, and the US viewership was 29.9 million. I'm going to assume that's eyes on screen, because that's a <laughs> bit bigger than uh, the usual Nielsen scores. But Gareth, I hear you scream. <laughs> what was at number one in the UK singles charts at that time? Well, I'll tell you. It's still bloody show me heaven. Oh, okay. But at number two, it's only the quo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which one? Status quo, as I live and breathe with, well, actually, it's a bit of a strange one. It's the anniversary waltz part one. Uh, what? Well, the anniversary waltz was a 10 minute medley of early rock and roll numbers which was cleft in twain for consecutive single releases. This sounds like the naffest thing ever. Yes, yes. I mean, the video will be up on Twitter soon, and yes. Status quo performing a medley of rock and roll hits, and that got num- 
and that got to number two in the UK charts. It did indeed, yes. So, so, this, so this is only part one, and there were two parts. <laughs> oh um, though research shows that part one is actually the second part of the medley as recorded, with the latterly released part two containing the first batch of songs. Because that makes perfect sense. Right, was was the first batch just like really poorly animated and it had to go back for re-editing or something? Quite possibly, yeah. It was the uh, <laughs> some enchanted evening of Status mm. Quo's anniversary waltz. Would you like to know what was part of the anniversary waltz part one? Okay. Because, yeah. well, you're about to find out. <laughs> so it kicks off with uh, Let's Dance. Um, hey, baby, we'll take a chance. I, 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 we have this dance, so let's dance. Da, 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 da. That's the one. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, as covered by the excellent Japanese surf band Jackie and the Cedrics, if you can get your hands on that. Um, something called Red River Rock, which I don't recognise. No. no Particular Place to Go by Chuck Berry. No. No? No. Oh, okay. Uh, the Wanderer, uh, as played by Dion originally. Oh, right, because I'm a wanderer, I'm a wanderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I I have to mention, since I didn't get my usual 90s comedy reference in last time, that that was the theme tune to season one of Alexi Sales' Stuff. Oh, right, okay. There we go, another box ticked there. Um, I Hear You Knocking, um, Lucille, and Great Balls of Fire. Status quo covered Great Balls of Fire. My word. It's, It's every bit as pedestrian as you might imagine. yeah. Wow, this is a really weird start to the show. <laughs> yeah, and, and this this was a medley of all of that by status quo was number two in the UK singles charts. That's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. Wow. Mm. Okay, that completely passed me by. <laughs> and with good reason. Yes. With good reason. Yes, that's not something you shout about, is it? Not at all. Not at all. So the chalkboard gag this uh, week, moving very swiftly on, uh, is tar is not a plaything. Mm-hmm. And the couch gag, the family walk like Egyptians. On a side note, I was uh, listening to Walk Like an Egyptian the other day, and it, it occurs to me, you probably couldn't get away with the line, foreign types with their hooker pipes these days. Probably not, no. Hmm. Uh, the writer of this episode was John Vitti. Yep. As previously described by us in episode two, Bart's the Storming of the Stasi HQ. <laughs> so, what happens? Well... Whilst failing to answer questions from a generic television quiz show, including guessing that the capital of a state is called Hitler... (laughs) Hitler, North Dakota. Yeah. Homer spies an advert for a miracle hair restorer in a commercial break and resolves to get hold of some. As we get a glimpse of Homer's ridiculous collection of flim-flam hair restoratives, including Gorilla Man, Bald Buster, and You Wanna Be Hair E. (laughs) I've never, I've never looked at that on the freeze frame. I, I guess I must. Its price tag of $1,000 puts it out of reach, though he is offered an alternative in his price range from which any hair growth he experienced would be purely coincidental. Whilst overstating his heroism in that conversation to Lenny and Carl over some dry, dry fish sticks, <laughs> he is convinced to falsify an insurance claim and prepares a form stating he needs demoxidil to keep his brain from freezing. <laughs> Having furtively bought the Demoxidil action pack in a back alley, Homer applies the elixir, uses the scalp massager, and hangs upside down in the gravity boots to promote hair growth. (laughs) He heads to bed with a final prayer and... It works! He wakes up with a huge head of shaggy hair and runs around town celebrating, including passing Moe's at presumably six or seven in the morning to find Barney's already there and already drunk. 
Yes. And bumping into another Demoxidal user who is doing the same thing, but apparently running the lap in the opposite direction around the city. After his first visit to Jake's Barbershop in a long, long time, and impressing Patty and Selma for the first, first time, her shoot Homer's fortunes get even better when he bags a promotion simply for looking the part. And after taking three minutes to say goodbye to his former friends, he is reassigned to a better life. <laughs> first task, hire a secretary. And after the motivational speech to end all motivational speeches, he plumps for a man named Carl, who immediately revolutionises his wardrobe and books an anniversary surprise for Marge. An emboldened Homer is credited with an increase in worker productivity and bags the keys to the executive washroom when his suggestion of more tartar sauce for the fish sticks in the cafeteria is mistaken for a profound piece of workplace psychology. Unfortunately, this puts him in a jealous Smithers' crosshairs, and Smithers duly uncovers his insurance fraud. Mr Burns, furious at his inability to buy a further ivory backscratcher, demands a sacking, but Carl takes the bullet by claiming he committed the fraud on Homer's behalf. Further, unfortunately, at this point Bart also spills all of Homer's remaining demoxidil in an attempt to grow a beatnik goatee. And having put absolutely no money away during his moment in the sun, Homer bids goodbye to his hair again, it going as quickly as it arrived. Homer is forced to give a big presentation without his hair, but Carl helps by writing a cracking speech and spelling all the big words phonetically. <laughs> That's such a sweet little bit. Despite this, Homer has no credibility without his hair and his words fell on deaf ears. Facing the sack, fellow slaphead Mr Burns takes pity on Homer and lets him return to the job he was failing so badly at in Sector 7G. Marge consoles him, returning us to the status quo in an episode that is luckily much more like rocking all over the world than the anniversary warts part one. <laughs> uh, you can tell this is a British podcast, <laughs> describing Mr Burns as another slaphead. <laughs> you may have noticed there's a, a character debut in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should talk about Carl. Mm, definitely. No surname given, just Carl. Mm-hmm. For my money, one of the most memorable one-shot characters, right up there with the Grimies and Scorpios. Carl is portrayed by Harvey Firestein, who is an openly gay actor, and Carl is certainly at least heavily implied to be gay, which at the time is probably the most they could get away with in their time slot. Yeah. They're continuing the daring theme, aren't they? Because last week we had we had the episode opening with Martin Prince saying to make love to a woman. Mm. And now we've got a character who is kissing Homer on the lips and patting him on the backside. Yeah. I I think they're wanting to push the envelope at this stage. Mm. Also, one recurring theme with The Simpsons seemed to be that for the first 10 to 15 seasons, they constantly thought they were going to get cancelled. Mm. That, that this would be the last hurrah, and they'd never get a chance to sort of express themselves creatively in this way again. So I could see why they're a bit sort of balls to the walls in the early going of this season. It's like, my God, we've actually got a second season of this. Yeah. Yeah, so, so let's keep seeing what we can get away with. Yeah, yeah. So eventually the Simpsons will go on to have two regular characters revealed as being gay, uh, which are Smithers and Patty, and they're both in this episode, but neither of them would be written as gay for a fair while. Mm. To the extent that Patty even expresses attraction to a man in this episode and will soon be dating Principal Skinner. Yes, yeah, and we're quite a long way from Smithers being attracted to Mr Burns. Yes, yes, he is a brown noser at this stage, but he's not 
he's not hit birds are sexual. No, no. And he's not gone past that into being just simply gay rather than somebody who is highly attracted to a single person, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the character of Carl doesn't actually look like Firestein. They, they were going to do it that way. Uh, but the actor contended that he didn't look how gay people are supposed to look and asked that they make the character blonde and tall and gorgeous and skinny, which is a quote. <laughs> is, is, um, is there a way gay people are supposed to look? Uh, he, also, he also uh, specifically asked that they give him a beautiful home. So yes. they, they, went for, they went for all of that. Okay. Um, Firestein was um, invited to reprise the role of Carl in season 14, episode 17, Three Gays of the Condo, in which Homer is thrown out by Marge and flat shares with a gay couple. But he turned down the invitation and somewhat damningly said that the script lacked that Simpsons twist and was just a load of gay jokes. Well, of course it is. That, 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 episode, that episode has a fudge packer joke in it. Yes. It's rubbish. It's, it's almost a Family Guy script. Yeah, yeah. Um... So we got uh, Grady and Julio instead. Julio would go on to be a semi-regular character. Okay. Uh, Grady, I think, has only reappeared once or twice. Uh, but that's in 14 seasons' time. Mm. So, uh, mm. anyway. Uh, Homer and Carl's kiss was one of the first homosexual kisses on primetime television. Although L.A. Law had previously established the let's have a lesbian kiss to spike ratings trope. Right, right. Um, this kiss was apparently passed off by the animators and creators as being akin to the kisses between Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Yeah. Which makes perfect believable sense if you're a total moron. <laughs> or perhaps a Fox television executive yeah, yeah. of the early 90s. It's it's also not 100% clear exactly where he kisses him. I think you could pass that off as a peck on the cheek. Because he kisses him somewhere within his stubble. True. And the camera angle does shift as well. It does, yes. There's, there's no lips locked. And Homer does not reciprocate. Yes, he, he shows shock more than anything, I suppose. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's... Um, it's a bit far calling it a gay kiss. It's a gay character kissing another man, but it's not It's not two lovers. No, no, it's not... It's... Hmm. Yeah, it's, it, I guess it's a, a gay kiss in such that it is defined as a gay person kissing a person, but it's... Yes. Uh, this is also our first visit to Jake's unisex hair palace. Though Jake was previously featured in a Tracy Ullman short called Bart's Haircut. He's not always shown to be great at his job, but when Lisa got gum in her hair during 22 short films about Springfield, he gave her a haircut that actually made her look like a real human. Mm. So he's at least got some skills. Uh, Homer has four separate haircuts in this episode. Yes, and they're all sort of pastiches of various 80s styles. They're all sort of power haircuts, aren't they? They are, yes. Very executive haircuts. Mm. Um, having just recently returned from America, I can tell you that the Demoxidil advert doesn't go near to the ridiculousness of television adverts for medicine over there. Oh, it's ridiculous. Obviously, yeah. You get about 10 seconds of somebody talking about how the drug changed their life, followed by a solid minute of a voiceover talking about the side effects in punishing <laughs> detail. Yeah, yeah. With a montage of shots of a person enjoying a sedate but social middle-class existence. Mm. Then you get a little quote, closing quote, and occasionally a further voiceover to rebut the closing quote. <laughs> it, it just fascinates me every time. I can't take my eyes off them. There's so many of them as well. And it, but it's just such a ridiculous concept. You're, you're allowed to advertise prescription medicine. It's a ridiculous thing to do. It's If you 
have something that needs treatment through medication. You go and see your doctor and your doctor will then prescribe something if they think you need it. You can't watch an advert and go, oh, I think I've got that. I'll talk to my doctor about it. No. Silly America. Stop it. I think we'll close with a few did you knows. Yes. Did you know Dimoxidil is based on Minoxidil? I do, because I'm a biochemist of sorts. Excellent. It's an antihypertensive vasodilator medication that is actually used to treat androgenic alopecia. Mm-hmm. It's also been marketed under the better known name of Rogaine. Yes. On his insurance form, Homer states that his home phone number is 555-6528. But we know that can't be true, as if we were to want to call a certain Mr. Plow. That's Klondike 53226. Mm. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. <laughs> Leaving aside the fact that he isn't yet technically a blunder. True. Uh, his date of birth, though, is May 10th, 1955, making him 35 at the time this episode aired. Okay. Speaking of ages, Mr. Burns quotes his as 81, though we'd later find out he was a lot older than that. Yes. Did you notice that when Homer desperately asks Marge if she's put any money away for a rainy day, he reaches into her hair, Mm, referencing the jar of Christmas savings she kept there in Season 1, Episode 1, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. Yeah, it's a really nice callback, that, actually. And surely everyone knows this one, but the entire title and some of the premise are lifted from the Bible. It's the Prankster's Bible, as we'll later learn. The story of Samson and Delilah begins in the 16th chapter of the Book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible. Samson is a Nazarene, the last of the judges of Israel, who is tremendously powerful, and Delilah is bribed by the Philistines to discover the source of his power. He lets it slip, she has a servant cut his hair, and he's handed over to the Philistines. And the lesson here, as that great prophet Stone Cold Steve Austin tried to teach us, is DTA. Don't trust anybody. Mm, yes, definitely. And that's Simpson and Delilah. And now, Gorbachev. Yes, excellent. Okay, so so just three days before Simpson and Delilah was first aired, Mikhail Gorbachev, then president, yes, president of the Soviet Union, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to have a look at the life and times of the man who played a key role in ending the Cold War. So Gareth, as the control hamster... What do you think of when you hear the name Mikhail Gorbachev? His spitting image puppet. Yes, yes. Uh, Also, Glasnost and Perestroika. Yes. um, Having a a role in the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, Not sure how much of one. More recent research I've done suggests that um, he was less hardline than some of his predecessors, Mm -hmm. such as Andropov and (laughs) Chernenko. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Also, he's got that very distinctive spot on his head, which, despite what Krusty the Clown says, is not herpes. Well, I, I didn't want to mention that. <laughs> well, I think I needed to, since it's a Simpsons show, and I've got to get I've got to get some Simpsons references to Gorbachev in there. Of course, Gorbachev will appear in The Simpsons uh, in Two Bad Neighbours. That's right. That's right. Um, so let's let's go to the start. Let's take a look at his upbringing because it's important in forming the man he would become. Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, and again, my Russian pronunciation is appalling, was born on March 2nd, 1931, in the village of Privolnoye, which today is in the southwest of Russia, but back then it was part of the Russian SSR and therefore part of the Soviet Union. 
This makes Gorbachev unique in being the only leader of the Soviet Union who was born in it. Ah, okay. So we, so we actually grew up with it rather than the rest of them. And as such, he experienced firsthand the worst horrors that Joseph Stalin had to offer. So in 1932, a combination of drought, collectivization of agriculture and Stalin's persecution of the Kulaks caused a famine that led to the deaths of approximately 10 million people. Gorbachev's village was affected and three of his aunts and uncles perished. Following that was Stalin's Great Terror, also known as the Great Purge. Hundreds of thousands of people were interrogated, tortured, killed or sent to the gulags under Stalin's orders. Included in this horror were the young Mikhail's grandfathers. Both of them were arrested, sent to the gulags, but later released, which was quite unusual, odds-wise, to have, to have two grandfathers who survived the gulags. Very, very unlikely. So in 1938, his maternal grandfather told him about the torture he had experienced at the hands of the secret police. Having experienced famine and torture, in 1941 he experienced another horror, war. June 1941 saw Hitler break the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and invade the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa. Being fairly close to the Ukraine, Gorbachev's village was occupied by the Nazis for four months. The war would have seen mixed and conflicting emotions for the young Gorbachev. His father joined up with the Red Army and fought on the front lines, where he was declared dead, but this turned out to be incorrect, as he went on to fight in the Battle of Kursk, which is the biggest tank battle in history, and later returned home injured. So can, so can you imagine that, what must have been going through his head? It's incredible stuff. After the war, the local school reopened and Gorbachev turned out to be an excellent student. In 1946, he joined Komsomol, which was the Soviet youth organisation. He became leader of his local group and was elected to be on the committee for the district. During the summer of 1948, he returned home from school to help his father with the local harvest, at times working 20 hours a day. For this, his father was awarded the Order of Lenin and Mikhail himself the Order of the Red Banner of Labour. So at this point, he's pretty much a model communist. He's doing well in school, he's a leader in the communist youth organisation, and he's been decorated for harvesting grain. But this country boy is about to make his move into the city. In 1950, he applied to study law at Moscow State University. He was accepted without having to take an entrance exam, probably due to his background. He also met his future wife, Raisa, and became a full member of the Communist Party. As such, he was expected to monitor his fellow students and report back to the party on their behaviour. However, he earned a reputation for protecting students. There was this idea that people could confide in him. The best example of this came in 1952, when Stalin instigated a wave of anti-Semitism which culminated in the Doctor's Plot, where Jewish doctors were arrested en masse tortured and accused of conspiring to murder prominent communists, including Stalin himself. While a student, Gorbachev publicly defended a Jewish student during this time, a move that would have been particularly brave. Not long after the doctor's plot, Stalin suffered a brain hemorrhage, laid in a pool of his own urine overnight, spent several days in agony, then died. Which is good, because he was a mass murdering... I mean, don't hold back. No, no, no. So yeah, so Stalin's, Stalin's dead, and the young Gorbachev took his turn 
to see him lying in state. Nikita Khrushchev took over and began a program of de-Stalinization, which my phone auto-corrected to de-Stalinization, which, is, say. which yeah. is something <laughs> completely different. So a couple of years later, Gorbachev graduated with distinction and moved to Stavropol in southwest Russia to work for the Komsomol. And I've had a look at what Stavropol's flag looks like, of course I have, and it's horrible. It's gold on white. It breaks the first law of tincture. You will look at it and go, eh. Metal on metal. Exactly. It's metal on metal. It's terrible. So whilst he was in Stavropol, he worked his way up the ranks, becoming first secretary of a regional Komsomol in 1961. While there, he had permission to travel to Eastern Bloc countries, and he first visited East Germany, you know, the GDR, in 1966. So, you know, back then... Just to be able to leave the Soviet Union at all would have been a big privilege, um, even if he is just going next door. 1968 saw the crushing of the Prague Spring when Warsaw-packed tanks rolled in to oust the liberal-ish regime of Alexander Dubček. The following year, Gorbachev was sent there as part of the Soviet delegation, noting how unwelcoming the Czechoslovaks were. Not that surprising, really. So in 1970, the Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, you know, the one with the eyebrows, made Gorbachev the first secretary of the Stavropol region, giving him considerable local power and a place in the Central Committee of the Communist Party. So, you know, by this time he's really getting into the, into the workings of the Soviet Union. This was all fairly remarkable given that he was only 39 at the time. Brezhnev's faith in Gorbachev seemed well-placed, as in 1972 he oversaw a record grain harvest and was awarded the Order of the October Revolution by Brezhnev himself. Not only was he well-connected to Brezhnev, he also made other important connections. For example, he went on holiday with the head of the KGB, one Yuri Andropov. Ah. Mm. And he was also trusted to travel to Western Europe visiting Italy, France, Belgium, and West Germany. In 1974, he was elected the Secretary of the Central Committee, and at this point, you won't be surprised to learn that he was the youngest person to be appointed to that role. In 1978, he was appointed to the Central Committee's Secretariat for Agriculture, focusing once again on grain production. There's a theme running through Gorbachev's life, and it's mostly around grain. That's a... It's always a communist trope, that, isn't it? Grain production and grain harvests. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, all of the Soviet roundels, all of the communist socialist roundels that were on all the flags of the Eastern Bloc all featured, like, ears of wheat, that sort of thing. So in 1980, he became a member of the 12-man Politburo, the highest decision-making body of the Soviet Union. And shortly before this, the Soviet-Afghan War began. That was back in December 1979. The Soviets justified this action by saying they were supporting the Afghan government against the Mujahideen, but pretty much the whole world knew it was a straightforward invasion. And the events of this are covered by the Tom Hanks film Charlie Wilson's War. Oh. I recommend watching that. It's very good. So in 1982, Soviet leader Brezhnev died after being in charge for 18 years. Yuri Andropov succeeded him, but would last only 16 months in this role. On his deathbed, Andropov spoke of his wish to be succeeded by Gorbachev. However, at 53, he was still deemed to be too young by the rest of the Politburo, and the Brezhnev ally Konstantin Chernenko became General Secretary. He lasted just over a year, and in this short time, Gorbachev continued to exert his influence, 
even travelling to the UK in 1984 for a meeting with... Margaret Thatcher. Oh! Thatcher is quoted as saying, I like Mr Gorbachev, we can do business together. Because of Chinenko's poor health, Gorbachev would often chair meetings in his place. I mean... I've seen photos of Chernenko from that time, and it's almost as if they've had to put a broom handle down his back just to get him to sit upright. Yes, a friend of the podcast, Tim Worthington, often uh, tells of watching the news around that time, and kind of, I believe there was a, a while where the Soviet Union were claiming he wasn't dead. That that would make sense. Yes, and sort of using using footage of him looking very very ill indeed as yeah. proof that he was actually fine. Well, 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 well he, he was ill when he was appointed. Yeah. So, yeah. When Chenenko finally expired in March 1985, the Politburo needed to decide on where they would go next. Three old leaders had died in quick succession, and to be frank, it was getting embarrassing. There was also a recognition of the need for reform, and Gorbachev was elected General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union on March 11th, 1985. So suddenly his youth was working as an advantage rather than the disadvantage. Yeah, it was. It was, because I think the average age of the Politburo, apart from him, was 75. Oh. Straight away, the political manoeuvrings began. Gorbachev was a reformer, but was acutely aware that conservatives, if you can have a conservative communist, on the Politburo could remove him from his post. He therefore moved to get the numbers in his favour. Many Politburo members were in their 70s, with the oldest, Vasily Kuznetsov, being 84. He persuaded these communist hardliners to retire and replace them with his allies, including former Canadian ambassador Alexander Yakovlev and one Boris Yeltsin. Ah, that's another name I recognise. Mm, absolutely, Boris Yeltsin certainly comes into play a bit later. All in all, Gorbachev managed to cement his control over the Politburo and Central Committee in less than a year, which was quite an achievement. Once in office, Gorbachev embarked on his famous reforms, most notably Glasnost and Perestroika. We'll talk about those in a minute, but first I want to talk about something that the Soviet Union was famous for, alcoholism. The stereotype of a vodka-swigging Russian was ingrained into the culture of the 1980s, even making it into video games. The arcade game Punch-Out, which sees the player fight various stereotypes from around the world, features a boxer from the USSR called Vodka Drunkinsky who was literally swigging from a bottle of vodka. And he was changed to Soda Popinski for the family-friendly NES version. This isn't the first time we've discussed Punch-Out, is it? Um, um, but is having it? said that, there was a uh, an episode where there was a Punch-Out-like game. I think it was Moaning Lisa, actually. Oh, that's what right, Homer yes. What are doing while all that's going on. That's right, yes. Yes, we have talked about Punch-Out. Yeah. Yes, you're right. So, all joking aside... Alcoholism was a serious problem in the USSR. In 1985, household disposable income spent on alcohol was estimated to be between 15 and 20%. Ooh. Imagine that. Soviets spending a fifth of their money on booze. As soon as he was in charge, Gorbachev launched a campaign to combat it. As the state was still in charge of production, supply could easily be reduced. In its first year... Production of vodka fell by 40%. Other measures included a ban on alcohol sales before 2pm on workdays, so no breakfast beer for Barney Gumble. The raising of the legal drinking age from 18 to 21, which is much more in line with what it is in the States. Fines for being drunk at work, 
and the prohibition of home-brewing equipment. Although these measures succeeded in decreasing the Soviet mortality rate, they were unpopular and they were costly. According to Yakovlev, they cost the state budget 100 billion rubles, which is an awful lot of money for a country that's not got much money in the first place. Oh, absolutely. Mm. But that wasn't the only economic reform Gorbachev pursued. In 1985, the Soviet economy was stagnant, and Gorbachev publicly acknowledged this and made the case for change, which was, which was unprecedented, really, in, in terms of what the Soviet leadership were doing, admitting something's wrong. So pretty much everything was centrally planned from Moscow, you know, which is extremely inflexible. It should be stated that Gorbachev's aims were not to replace the centrally planned economy, but make it better with more regional autonomy and even foreign investment. The most notable example of this was the opening of the first McDonald's in Moscow. See episode 5. It's fair to say that in economic terms, perestroika failed. Shortages of basic goods were commonplace, and dissatisfaction with the government was high. As for glasnost, roughly translated to openness, the need for it became even more apparent following the Chernobyl disaster of 1986. Officials fed Gorbachev incorrect information in the aftermath of the disaster, which led to delays in the incorrect information being known and 300,000 people being evacuated. So with Glasnost and Perestroika in place, let's go over Gorbachev's contributions to world peace. The first is the detente with the US to lessen the nuclear arms race, a key feature of the Cold War. The USSR was spending a huge amount of resources on trying to keep up with the US. Gorbachev met with President Reagan for talks in Geneva in November 1985. He proposed that the USSR would half the size of its long-range nuclear arsenal in exchange for the USA scrapping their Strategic Defence Initiative program, also called SDI, otherwise known as Star Wars. Ah, yes. You know, the idea of having like satellites in space which had lasers which could shoot missiles whilst they were on their way to their targets. Unfortunately, not much came of these talks, although Reagan did offer guarded praise for Gorbachev's reforms. On to his next contribution to world peace, his rejection of the Brezhnev Doctrine. The doctrine, retroactively named after Gorbachev's predecessor, Leonard Brezhnev, roughly stated that the Soviet Union could intervene militarily if any country within its sphere of influence attempted to abandon socialism. The policy was enacted in 1956 with defeat of the Hungarian Revolution and again in 1968 with the crushing of the Prague Spring. And it was also used to justify the invasion of Afghanistan, even though Afghanistan wasn't really part of the Soviet sphere. It was just a country to invade, essentially. Gorbachev, however, took a different view. He believed that countries could find their own way to socialism. This meant that the USSR did not intervene during the revolutions of 1989, which included the overthrow of Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania, see episode 1, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, see episode 2, or, if you dare, the pilot episode. No one dares. No. Let me just be very clear about this. No, don't listen to the pilot episode, it's not very good. If anyone does dare, we'll be very upset with them. <laughs> So Gorbachev also started to withdraw Soviet troops from Afghanistan soon after he took office, although the war wouldn't be officially over until 1989. Yeah, it ran for nine years and hundreds of thousands of people died. It was uh, pretty terrible. So just a quick note on how he became President Gorbachev by the time he won his Nobel Peace Prize. In 1989, Gorbachev moved to replace the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union with the Congress of People's Deputies, 
Although it worked in much the same way, it was done to sideline Soviet hardliners. It elected a president, with Gorbachev being the only name on the ballot. Despite this, he only got 59% of the vote. (laughs) Which is really quite impressive. Oh, oh, that's really got me. (laughs) That really has. Sorry, carry on. Okay. So because of all this, Mikhail Gorbachev was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize on October 15th, 1990, three days before Simpson and Delilah first aired. These are the words of the Norwegian Nobel Committee. During the last few years, dramatic changes have taken place in the relationship between East and West. Confrontation has been replaced by negotiations. Old European nation-states have regained their freedom. The arms race is slowing down and we see a definite and active process in the direction of arms control and disarmament. Several regional conflicts have been solved or have at least come closer to a solution. The UN is beginning to play the role which was originally planned for it in an international community governed by law. These historic changes spring from several factors, but in 1990, the Nobel Committee wants to honour Mikhail Gorbachev for his many and decisive contributions. The greater openness he has brought about in Soviet society has helped promote international trust. In the opinion of the committee, this peace process, which Gorbachev has contributed so significantly to, opens up new possibilities for the world community to solve its pressing problems across ideological, religious, historical and cultural dividing lines. So, you know, that's... that's Fairly high praise from the Nobel Committee. Yeah, yeah. By the time he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, Gorbachev and the Soviet Union itself were on the decline. I'll save the preceding events for a future episode, as it includes the attempted coup, which I really can't wait to get to, because it's it's fascinating. So one thing that makes Gorbachev distinct from the other Cold War leaders is that, as of January 2019, he's still alive. He's nearly 90, but you think Cold War, you think everyone's dead. Yeah. So, so you know, Reagan, George Bush and Margaret Thatcher, they're all dead. And whenever I need cheering up, I just have to remind myself that Margaret Thatcher's still dead. <laughs> Is that, that's uh, kind of a product of him being younger when elected, I guess. I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, because he's in his late 80s now. He was in his 50s when he was first running the Soviet Union. So, yeah. So there's plenty more to say about the life and times of Mikhail Gorbachev, but that will have to wait for another day and another episode. And I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, Remember, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can get us at underscore Retrospecticus on Twitter or send an eel to podcast at Retrospecticus.org. And join us next time for something altogether more scary. Yeah. The Norwegian government collapsing. Ooh. <laughs> See you then. Bye, everyone. Retrospectus.